does the story begin? With a boy. Too old. To be a kid. Too young. To be a man. I'm just a backup. Lee, nobody can appreciate what you've been through. And if you really feel you can't take this on, you know, that's your right. Where are we going, to the orphanage? Shut up. Get in the car. Can't obey your orders until you unlock the door. You didn't masturbate before you got here, did you? You what? <laughs> I told you I don't want to work with anybody who's carrying a loaded weapon. Fuck the small talk. Let's buy some guns, eh? You're on a different level now. The guy who represents this merchandise, his lawn is bigger than your whole fucking country. Justine. As gorgeous as ever. Well, there you've... Uh... Put on a bit of weight. Like a... Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host, Rob Daniel, editor of electric-shadows.com. As always, I am very happy to say that I am joined by my learned colleague, Mr. Rob Wallace. Uh, as always, it is a pleasure to be here. Editor of, of all the film sites, dot com. Dot com, indeed. And uh, so we suggest that you check out those two sites if you like reading about movies and stuff. This is if going... you don't, then have a look anyway. Yeah, have a look, it, have it, a look it anyway. It might change your mind. Um, so that's a bit threatening, didn't it? Again, this is going to be a roundup of the 2016 London Film Festival that Rob and I were fortunate enough to go to over the last week and a half. First of all, I have to apologise for any sniffing, coughing, snuffling you hear from my area. On this podcast, I have been fighting off a cold for the past week, and it hasn't... Well, the cold has won, basically. So uh, I am going to be uh, rather sniffly on this. He's basically something out of a Cronenberg film by this point. It is complete body horror. I tell you, it's like, you know, a week. And can also say that nothing works in um, in, build, in in trying to beat a cold. I have been on Lemsip, I've been on orange juice, fruit, chicken soup, as much water as my stomach can hold... Sleep like you wouldn't believe. I had to skip a couple of days of the festival just to try and like yeah rest up, and uh, yeah I've, I've still got it. So it's clearly Ebola. Um, so that's so this is the last one I'll be doing because I will just be a putrescent mess uh, by this time next week. But you know I'll, I'll try and carry on in your spirit. Indeed, it's been a long time slagging me off. So now now the proper podcast can start. That <laughs> was eleven or ten months of warm up. Now we reach a point where I'm doing both our voices. Yeah, indeed. It's, <laughs> maybe well, I already am. Maybe I <laughs> And actually, yes, he's, um, he can do one of those things that the um, Mongolian throat warblers can do, where we can produce two different sounds at the same time. That's why we talk over each other. It, but it is still just one person doing this. I think the Lemsip has really kicked in. <laughs> <laughs> cool, okay. So, um, the London Film Festival. We have now seen all of the press screenings that we could attend. Um, we saw the final film today. This has been recorded on Friday the 14th of October. Um, it won't be made live until 9 o'clock on Sunday the 16th of October because of an embargo around Free Fire, which is the closing film. Um, but we saw Free Fire this morning and uh, we liked it, I think. Yeah, I think, I think I liked it more than you did, just because it was... Pure and simple, very well affected sort of genre fare. Yeah, and I know that you like your Ben Wheatley with a little bit more experimental. Absolutely, perfectly put. I liked it. It was. It seemed a bit like a calling card movie for the states, um, but 
you know, a new Ben Wheatley is always going to be cause for celebration, I think. So, in terms of the festival, what were the standouts for us both? Um, well, that we both saw. Um, I think um, that would have to include, I'm working off what, what we've both got down, uh, The Handmaiden, the new Park Chan-wook film. Yep. Uh, a Monster Calls, uh, the J.A.B. owner, well, I'm sure we'll go into it in a bit, but no, uh, some similarities to your your perennial favourite, uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Indeed. Um, La La Land um, by uh, uh, Damien Chazelle's follow-up to Whiplash, starring, you know, a golden age of Hollywood musical, starring Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. Which was absolutely lovely. Um, and Free Fire, we basically both got on with. I think those are the main ones that we, think, thought that we yeah. have in common. Well, let's... Let's quickly cover off the opening film, which was A United Kingdom, which we tried to do an impromptu podcast about after the screening on my iPad. Um, I hadn't properly got the right app. It wasn't very good at um, capturing sound, so it didn't come out very well. So um, so just a, a quick recap of what we thought yeah. of the United Kingdom. In all fairness, that's probably not a film that entirely merits its own podcast. No, not really, no. So it was the opening film, I think. I think it was the right opening film. You know, as I said at the time, if you could give star ratings for good intentions, then a United Kingdom is a five star film. As a film, it's a very safe middle of the road three star film that wouldn't look out of place at eight o'clock on on ITV on a Sunday night or something like that. It's and, I mean, which it is just it's a little bit disappointing. I mean, it's got great pedigree. Amara Sante, who directed Bell, yeah, um, a cast including David Oyelowo, um, uh, Rosamund Pike, Jack Davenport, Jack Davenport. Uh, and it's about uh, Saretsi Kala, who yeah. was the Prince of Bechuanaland, uh roughly around uh, the fifties, was it? It was um, a nineteen forty-eight. Nineteen forty-eight. Yeah, late, late, late forties. And who married a basically a British shop girl during his studies in London, uh, only to get told by the British government that this was very much not all right because they had relations to maintain with with uh, South Africa, who at that point were somewhat fond of their segregation. Well, they were just bringing in this thing called apartheid, weren't they? In the film, they said like, yeah, there is. They are bringing in apartheid. Are you familiar with that word? And Ruth Williams, played by, Ros- um, played by Rosamund Pike, says that she's not, as I would imagine that most people weren't at that point. Um, and, yeah, she's an office worker, isn't she? Who then, at one point, gets talked down about as a typist and says, I'm not a typist. And there's, I mean, It was nice, and it was a good film. And really, in this year, when there's just... When this country is just so divided, I think right now it was it was nice to have a film that kind of says, "Do you know what? Tolerance, understanding, and just just basically trying to you know, get to know people before you judge them is probably the best way to go about things." It's like, well, that's that's a good message to have. And you know, because in this, you know, the, the heroes are are noble, and you know, and David David Oyelowo, you know, he. Um, didn't wasn't Oscar Oscar nominated for playing Martin Luther King in Selma, <laughs> but this is the same sort of tenor of an incredibly charismatic, articulate leader of men who's you know faced by you know uh, uh, faced by figures within the establishment who have their own agenda. Yeah, and Rosamund Pike like to silence him. And Rosamund Pike has this great sort of you know this uh, English rose sort of resilience to her. You know, out, out in Africa and sort of trying to prove that she's not just another colonialist who's come on and is actually you know trying to claim 
the uh, the ancestral position of queen. Yeah, which you could understand, you know, the, the tribes people um, having some very reasonable objections to. Uh, and Jack Davenport plays this supercilious diplomat, who you know he basically you know he basically weaponizes condescension. He also weaponizes Sherry as well, doesn't yes, he? Office, office of Sherry. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Tom Felton, Malfoy himself, um, with this incredibly with this mustache that as soon as you see it, you go, "Oh, you're a wrong." And and that's the thing. I mean, I think that this the demarcations of good and bad in this film are as clear cut and simplistic as a golden age Disney film I mean the villains are literally Disney villains they are sneering privileged horrible horrible people um, and if you put and there's that, not a redeeming feature about them really it's uh, I mean if you put some yeah exactly if you put some songs in this and if this was animated it would you, yeah. you wouldn't really have to touch the script no that's right it's um, it, but it, yeah it was fine it was yeah it was as, as opening films go that's fine um, yeah you have to make some sort of statement and uh, also, I think something to shout out Nicholas Lindhurst as <coughs> uh, her father, as um, as um, what's her name, uh, Ruth's father, yeah, and with his bristling mustache and his very sort of middle cl- lower middle class outrage. Oh, yeah, his sort of outrage at the prospect of you know, I'm afraid if you do this, I'm going to have to disown you. Yes, indeed, you are dead to me if you do this. And there's there's some really good sledgehammer symbolism in there where. Um, when she's telling him his his back is to camera and he's winding a clock, isn't it? He's like he's trying to change time because t- because the times are changing and it's uh, it's like okay, right? I kind of see what you're doing there. Um, and but I know that everything's going to be all right. I know that ultimately you're going to not be a horrible person and that there will be and that you'll some come, sort of come around in some way and, and some understanding it's like, that's fine I mean it's kind of like yeah it's just that yeah the ITV on a Sunday night at 8 this will not pick out a place at all the streets of London are foggy the plains of Africa are dusty yeah. there's a sweeping score that wouldn't seem out of place in out of Africa absolutely um, anyway let's get on to the more interesting films um, and I would say that The Handmaiden is uh, it's a much more interesting film. Um, so the new film from Park Chanuk, uh, who directed Old Boy and Lady Vengeance and Thirst and Stoker. This is another five-star film he can add to his canon. Quite extraordinary movies that he makes. This one is about a young woman in who's who's a thief. She's like a pickpocket in 1930s Korea under Japanese rule. Uh, she is recruited by a con man to enter the uh, the house of a Japanese lady uh, to to basically rip her off and to um, to get all of all of her finery and things like that. But things happen between them, and there are lots of surprises, lots of twists in the story, and it really is quite something. Yeah, sort of kinky psychosexual things happen between them. Kinky psychosexual things. Also, um, it's it's based on a book... Uh, what's the name of the book again? Fingersmith, which is an English novel. But uh, this translates really well to South Korea, under Japanese rule. There's this whole thing about identity in there and about how the Koreans see themselves. They are a subject nation, basically. And the way that they are either collaborating with the Japanese or they are trying to rebel against the Japanese and what that means for the way that they perceive themselves there is also a huge huge theme of of men versus women and men's 
fascination and fear of women as well. I mean, like, yeah, without spoiling anything, it goes into some very, very dark psychosexual areas in a way that is not as graphic as I thought it would be. I mean, there's some very explicit sexual scenes in, in this movie. I mean, it's much more sexually explicit than Parchanuk, I think, has ever been in any of his other films. But in terms of the the ideas of of the male fear of women and trying to dominate women, a lot of it just comes through 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 the dialogue and and the way that the women are made to say certain things is um, I just found it absolutely fascinating. It's incredibly fetishistic. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, which actually leads on really well from what he was doing in, in Stoker. And Stoker was a film that was all about fetishism, and he seems to have really taken to that theme and continues it here but uh, but also I think with his films as well they're all always really good fun to watch I mean yeah he he makes films that move along at a fair old clip I mean this one's two and a half hours but it moves along really really quickly it looks amazing he always shoots in widescreen and he shoots very very kinetically very very dynamically there's lots of humour in there and you get to the end and it's like that was that was a a big watch <laughs> I thought yeah, I mean it's very uh, it's very um, thematically nuanced and I mean literary. I mean, as given the given the source material, uh, uh, there's another film that I believe has made your list of top films that that hasn't made mine. That covers much of the same ground, although I think somewhat of a sledgehammer blow to. Uh... Yeah, that would be the um, the fiery brimstone, which. We will talk about in a in a moment. I want to hear one of the ones that you really liked, but uh, but yeah, there was lots to say about Brimstone. Oh, what a movie! Um, uh, should we do one that I've seen and you haven't? Or yeah, why don't you talk about uh, yeah? Go on. Well, my, my, probably my top film of the festival would be Manchester by the Sea, the new Kenneth Lonergan film, and it's essentially a character study of this character called Lee, played by Ben Affleck. Uh, no, ben Affleck, Casey Affleck, the younger Affleck. <laughs> the uh, the Affleck I'd say gives more consistently good performances. Really? Well, over the course of a career. I think that, that Casey Affleck... I could say that he chooses more interesting films. Yeah, that, and perhaps that, that's the case to make. Um, but uh, in any case, he plays this character, <coughs> Lee, who works as a janitor in Boston and comes from this small town of Manchester by sea... By, by the sea, sorry. There's a, there's a definite article in there. Um, and uh, his brother, um, played by Carl Chandler, dies suddenly but not unexpectedly and he has to sort of drop everything and go home to arrange the burial and it is about this guy who is very frozen emotionally you know he's not able to engage with people you know small talks utterly beyond him and there's a real like guilt and grief within him and the film has these sort of nestled flashbacks throughout that delve into how he came to be in this state and so it's got Carl Chandler, who was um, who's very good in a relatively small part, uh, as he was last year in Carol, mm. and uh, it's Michelle Williams, and the character, the actor who plays his nephew, who named whose name temporarily escapes me, who's this sort of bright, <coughs> popular kid, suddenly having to deal with all this stuff that he almost, like, you know, he obviously obviously cares that his dad's died, but it's almost an inconvenience to everything else he'd rather be doing in life, right. And it's an. I can't think of a film. Uh, it's, it's glacially beautiful. You know, it's set during the winter in in in, uh, in the north off, on the North Shore, and it's scored with you know classical, almost operatic, 
intensity and I can't think of a film that deals as well with the ideas of depression as honestly and the fact that there are some things that you just don't get over it doesn't offer that neat resolution of okay certain events have played out and now we get the feeling he's going to be able to move on with his life which you know, is just not to say he doesn't but it's far more honest and without without ever being entirely without ever being entirely bleak yeah so yeah a hard thing to do, really, is um, I mean, yeah, especially when you're dealing with such, you know, not with such emotional devastation. We've all seen films where it's just absolute misery, and then and then the credits roll and you, uh, and you stumble out. There's a scene where um, uh, Michelle Williams' character, who is his wife, I, I won't delve into their relationship because it's too much of a spoiler. Tries to sort of get him to open up, and it's really, I mean, it's probably the most powerful film I've seen. I've seen this year in terms of the contrast between them the understanding where both characters have come from and their inability to reckon to reconcile yeah um well i sorry, uh, uh, sorry lucas hedges uh plays his nephew patrick excellent i'm going to quickly have a cough and a sneeze or like a a nose blow i'll see if i'm going to leave this in or not <coughs> I, I, it's, it's <laughs> Blimey! Oh no, sorry. It's fascinating, but it might be a little bit how the sausages get made. It might be. How the... <laughs> See, if you say that, then I have to leave it in because that's funny. Um, but uh, right. Well, if you don't mind, when I would like to talk about the film that I was watching when you were watching Manchester by the Sea, which was L. So, and I was a little bit annoyed actually that Manchester by the Sea was put against L because it's like, well. Come on, guys. These are two of the must-see films of the festival, and that, and that was a scheduling clash, I think. L is the Paul Verhoeven film. His first film since Black Book back in 2006, so you know, a decade without a new film from him. It's one that caused a real storm at Cannes. Um, you'll find out why when I tell you what the story is. Basically, Isabella Pair is the CEO of a video games company, she is very pragmatic um, and compartmentalised within how she manages her life. Um, she has a very dysfunctional family around her and she sees herself as like the cool head that has to look after everyone. One day she is raped in her kitchen uh, by a masked man and kind of puts that to one side because she's very busy with, with other other things and... Of course, it won't stay put to one side. She keeps having flashbacks about it. Um, but the way that she chooses to handle the fact that she was raped is not a typical way. She doesn't go to the police. She, it's something that she tries to have command over and have power over in her life like she does every other aspect of her life, which is a really interesting way to approach that. And I thought it was done well. Lots of people thought that it wasn't particularly as the film is also a black comedy it's important to say that the rape and the laughs are kept separate don't cross the streams they don't cross the streams at all but it is one of those things where her reaction to it and the way that she deals with it is treated in in a blackly comic way so it has a I thought that it was very, very well balanced in its tone, and it's also one of those things where, look, you know, Isabella Pear is one of the smartest actresses. She's not going to be 
manipulated into doing something that you know, she has no control over and she's not going to be duped basically and her performance is so fantastic in this film she is someone because she clearly yeah, doesn't like the fact that this has happened to her but she also won't be a victim and there are other things that have happened in her past that also tie into this as well and it's a really it's a heavy brew I have to admit but uh, it I thought it was really well done um, a colleague I saw it with said that he didn't think it was very well done he he thought that it did kind of tip its hand in terms of getting laughs and but yeah so it is one that you will be discussing so the theme of this London Film Festival is um, black talent and there are lots of films that celebrated black talent last year's film um, sorry last year's theme was female talent but I think that this year the female talent was as strong as last year so you have Elle with this amazing performance from Isabella Pear you have Prevenge which is this a first rate horror film from Alice Lowe who was seven months pregnant when she was making it and it's about a pregnant woman who's, who, who thinks her baby is telling her to kill people um, you have The Handmaiden which has absolutely fantastic performances in there from the female leads um, you have Una which is the Rooney Mara one and I think that actually Rooney Mara's performance was the best performance that I saw this year so there's a lot of uh, absolutely fantastic female performances I, uh, this year I, uh, I didn't see Una, I can't remember why I think I think that you were seeing what could have been the best film at the festival but turned out to not be the best film at the festival no I'm going to call I think it was my worst film at the festival go on what were you seeing when I saw Una? Una, just very, very quickly, um, is based on the play Blackbird by David Harrower, um, directed by Benedict Peter... No, Benedict Andrew, I think his name is. Um, he's a first-time director, but he was a theatre director before. Rooney Mara plays Una. She, in the past, has been in a sexual relationship with Ben Mendelssohn's character. You find this out very, very early on. But she was underage when they were having this relationship, and through flashbacks and through their conversations, you find out you know, what has happened and you know, where she is in in her life now. And actually, like Elle, it's another one of those films that I can see people getting a bit annoyed about because Una won't wear the victim tag, but there's clearly been some damage that's that's happened there that she's having to work through. It's not a comedy. It's played very dark. It actually reminded me of Alan Clark, uh, you know, the guy who did Made in Britain and Scum and, and The Firm. It's very stark. It's a very stark movie. Lots of it just plays out in you know, long dialogue scenes between the two of them. There's very little score, uh, but it really does add up to something. It's very, very powerful, I thought. Anyway, I was watching Una having this really powerful experience um, in which I had to ask a couple of people to be quiet because they wouldn't stop whispering and then they got off and left. But anyway. <laughs> Shouldn't have Having there. people whisper would have been a welcome respite from Voyage of Time, <coughs> Journey of Life, the new Terence Malick film. Um, yeah, I can't believe it. he's... I went back to the well after <laughs> Night of Cups. One of the reasons I like you, Rob, is because you are a brave man. So most people just think, right, I've done my one Malick film for the year, and I certainly thought that after Night of Cups. But you've done two Malick films this year. Um, it better than Knight of Cups because at least it, it, it goes it goes a step further towards you know my one of my major annoyances with Knight of Cups was the uh, non commitment to narrative 
this film has no narrative other than the vague sort of pontificating provided by Kate Blanchett in voiceover. Um, she's like this Gaia-obsessed Galadriel because every, every utterance, every solemn utterance is opened with Mother. And it's essentially <laughs> almost stream of consciousness, IMAX footage, you know, the, the bottom of the, 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 the depths of the ocean and the, and the arid desert and <coughs> the universe and there's Jupiter and there's you know the this this sort of the fabric of the Milky Way and here's the the, the development of primitive man and those CGI dinosaurs from Tree of Life and there's I mean Malik is grasping at infinity he's you know going going back to the Night of Cups he's, he's treating all these images as, as though they're tarot cards that are going to unlock something but it's up to you to figure it out and therefore if you don't get it it's your failure it's on you yeah it's on you and there's uh, I think the most telling thing is uh, there's there are quite there are some long scenes sort of over black and there was this this little white dot on the screen and I was thinking is that is that like is that the singularity that birthed the universe is that the big bang is is this something going to explode outwards and everything's going to because that would at least be a really interesting sequence no it's a dead pixel <laughs> there was a dead pixel on the screen in the screening when I went to see this and that for me you know I um I believe that you you phrased it as being a case of the Emperor's new clothes, and it very much is. All you know, of Malik is that now, because you know Malik used to actually you know take t- ten take a decade and make himself a lovely metaphysical suit, and <laughs> at this point he's sort of just wandering around with his tape measure hanging hanging, hanging down his crack. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, that's brilliant. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Terence, but your black hole showing, and everyone can see it. <laughs> so, and, it and you've just disappeared up it. So there you go. <laughs> yes, it's um, there are a couple of um, images in that that at least lend themselves to some interpretation. There's one of like all these this sort of mountain of crabs, and they're all climbing, cl- clambering over each other, and literally a few feet away from the surface of the water, which you know you can see the light shining through, and it's like okay, that could be read as like an allegory for humanity, and we're so close to the light, but we're so caught up in our sort of in the day to day toil of what we're doing and, and we'll like, go sideways yeah and we'll go and, we'll, and it's like but I, that's something I've brought that's, that's an interpretation I've brought to that scene Terence. You, you've asked and you know that kind of works but when you're showing me a shot of Jupiter like a long take of Jupiter it feels like this is interstellar and at any point Matthew McConaughey's spaceship's going to hove into shot except <laughs> it never does it never does where is the spaceship see the thing I think about that is that okay so Terence Malley you are clearly a uh, fiercely intelligent guy but the universe is a fascinating place if you listen to Brian Cox talk about the universe it's really fascinating but when you put together from what from what you told me a lot of disjointed images with no temporal order to them it doesn't start at the beginning of, of the universe and go through to where we are now it's all kind of randomised by the, by the sound of it it's like well what you're just not bringing anything um, of the wonder of, of the universe There's some camcorder footage in there too. I mean, that's thing. If you want to see from the birth of the universe to basically the present day, there are, there are you know, some very brief sequences, sort of montages in, in um, adaptation in the Charlie Kaufman film. Where, uh, when Nicholas uh, Cage's character is talking about, he's he's sort of rambling and he's tr- desperately trying to think of an opening to the film, and he and he talks about the birth of the universe and rushes it all <laughs> the way through to the present day. Like, oh yeah, I thought about that. That is an interesting sequence because that's in, you know, because of the intensity and this and and the immediacy and the real breakneck pace of it. This is that without any commentary, disjointed, out of order, over the space of ninety minutes. 
It makes you wonder what's next for Matt, doesn't it? Because it's like you have come from being one of the most interesting filmmakers when you weren't making films, and then you would produce something like The Thin Red Line, which I think is you know, one of the great war films, and you need something as big as the conflagration of World War Two to really human drama. Sell the metaphysical stuff that you're talking about in terms of like, you know, what is our place in the world? What is our place in this universe when all we're doing is trying to kill each other? But now it's like he seems to have completely disbanded with the idea of telling a story at all and is just a, all about twirling, women twirling in a diaphanous dress at magic hour, dusk. I just think yeah, it, it needs that, you know, so the, so the, the the human drama and the, mm. and, and the narrative to tether it, because otherwise the balloon goes up and it just keeps on going up yeah. forever. And sometimes it will look quite striking, but ultimately it's like, is that balloon going to do anything else? <laughs> because I am so bored watching this. And that's yeah. the thing, is that his films are boring, and I know it's... I mean, that's the I thing. know he's a cinematic sacred cow, but come on, guys, you're... These films are boring. And I've, you know, I think I've got, and I've got a tolerance. I think I've got mm. a pretty high tolerance for films that other people might find boring. But yeah, he he is Wes Bentley in American Beauty. Uh, yeah, te- yeah, <laughs> tears streaming down his face while filming the plastic bag blowing in the wind. <laughs> okay, so moving off of that, then to um, a film that was a really big surprise for me, and I think was like. Was a surprise for you as well? Was a monster calls? Yes, um, and a, a lovely surprise as well. Uh, so, a monster calls directed by J. A. Bayona. Is that how you say? Bayona. Bayona. He, he directed the orphanage and the impossible, and the impossible was the Hugh McGregor, Naomi Watts tsunami film, which I have to admit I never saw, but I I, I heard it was good. I like the orphanage. The orphanage was the kind of ghost story in the same vein as. Pan's Labyrinth or The Devil's Backbone. He's a he's a protege of Guillermo del Toro, and The Monster Calls is based on a book, um, a kids' book, and it's about this young lad who his mum is so um, his mum is stricken by cancer, and it it's not going very well, and her treatment's not going very well, and he's been bullied at school. His dad lives in in the states with another family. Uh, he doesn't get on with his grandma, who's played by Scorny Weaver, but he does have a very active imagination and is an artist of some considerable some talent. Yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah, of some talent. One night, the uh, the yew tree in the graveyard opposite his house comes to life and marches up to him and, and says it's, it's going to tell him three tales. And at the end, he has to say a tale of his own. The yew tree is uh, voiced by Liam Neeson, but mocap by. Tom Holland, who is the new Spider-Man. Um, and through this, it's all about how imagination and art can help you come to terms with things, and even, like, you know, the darkest things. And, yeah, it was a really... it's It has a really big emotional punch to it. It's, um... I'm not a huge... I have to admit, I've not been a huge fan of Felicity Jones in the past. I thought that her Oscar nomination for The Theory of Everything was a bit just a bit weird. It's like, well, man what she did in that film but here I thought she was great as the mum and it is a supporting role but I thought that she had some fantastic scenes um, with the young lad well she's just meant to be this sort of sparky life affirming presence who's slowly <coughs> fading away yeah and she does she does that very well um, and uh, who else and, and Toby Kebbell's good as the well meaning but flaky dad yes what was it that um, 
Uh, so Lewis McDougall plays Connor, who is the young lad in the film. He's and and he's kind of in every scene, really. It's uh, yeah, he really does carry the film. And there's uh, a bit when he's talking to Toby Kevill when, and he says, "Yeah, Grandma says you're all start and no finish." <laughs> it's just that he just has you know, moments like that in there, and it's a really great mix of of grim reality of just some really you know, naturalistic moments. Um, I think it was filmed in the south of England, and it looks it looks very good. And some really great special effects sequences. I mean, the the tree, when it comes to life, as, and it's called the monster, is kind of like... It kind of reminded me of the Ents from Lord of the Rings and Optimus Prime and... Uh, Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing. And there was one other thing that it reminded me of as well. I'm going to have to look at my review to see what it was. But, it, but there were three things that it really reminded me of. Um, oh, yeah, Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy. But it's all its own thing as well, and I thought it was... Um, the stories are clearly lessons and and the big emotional punch at the end I thought it really added up to something there was yeah, we saw it at the Odeon Lesser Square and there was quite a bit of sniffling at the end wasn't there <laughs> when uh, you could hear you could hear some sniffling going on yeah that comes out on New Year's Day and I think I think it's a it's a perfect family film it's, I'd consider uh, going to see it again oh yeah yeah indeed definitely yeah, I'll go and see it again it'd be interesting to see what because I think it's it's a great family film because it doesn't patronise the kids I think adults would admire the intelligence of it. It's got lots of humour in there, and also, like, yeah, the effect sequences are very, very good. And that's not even mentioning the animation sequences. Oh yes, indeed, it's a wonderful uh, water, watercolour, and ink fantasy. Um, the tales that the monster tells in order to impart these lessons to the boy, and you know, the sort of um, the the noble prince and the curmudgeonly forest uh, woodland wood wood you know woodkeeper. Um, what's, uh, what's the term? Um, apothecary. Yes. Uh, and <coughs> yeah, it's it's a film with a lot of heart, mm. um, which I know is a bit of a cliche, but it it, it really holds true in this one. And actually, uh, it, there, there, I think it's another resonance in the film festival this year is the importance of storytelling. Yes. I'm, I'm told that I wasn't. I, uh, Fortunately, um, neither Rob or I were able to attend Nocturnal Monsters, the new Tom Ford film, because of a, a clash, well, not a clash, an issue involving the scheduling of that and Free Fire, which we'll get into later. Um, but about animals. Yes. But apparently that's got a lot to do with storytelling and the necessity of it, as does um, Their Finest. Yes, indeed, that's right. It's, um, again, uh, yeah, so Their, their Finest... Sorry, I've got get... And so it ends... I've always loved you. <laughs> um, don't go. Don't go. Yeah, their finest. Um, so based on the book, their finest hour and a half is about the uh, it's about the war movies that were made during World War Two that were intended to boost morale, particularly after Dunkirk. And Gemma Arterton is this Welsh writer who gets a job with the Ministry of is it Ministry of Information? Information. Yeah, yeah, that she works for in their filmmaking department writing um, the slop yes indeed yeah and she and she writes the slop which is the slang for you know the female stuff all the female dialogue that the men couldn't possibly understand or write so and also isn't very important but you have to put it in there so she's coming up against just you know some good old fashioned male chauvinism but has this idea she hears about these twins who nick their dad's boat to go over to to Dunkirk to rescue some of the soldiers and bring them back when they were doing the mass evacuation. 
and she thinks this is a really good scenario to make a film about and so they embark on making this film I suppose it's a bit like a United Kingdom in that it's very cosy it's very easy um, you again could imagine it being on telly on a Sunday night but this one was really good though it's sharper funnier and more moving than the United Kingdom yeah it really is and it, and it does have something to say about the power of art and imagination in the darkest times to really you know, unite people and bring them together and it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, of the Preston Sturges film Sullivan's Travels which again is like yeah which was all about how just a really good comedy in the Great Depression could really raise spirits there's a lot of things in in their finest that's quite clever in the way that you make a film some of the things they have to do to get around some of the problems they're having I thought was really really funny they have this American war hero in there who isn't the best actor so they have to work around the fact that he can't stop smiling and looking at the camera when he's delivering his lines (laughs) which was that first time he does it I thought was absolutely brilliant Uh, anyway um, and uh, let's not forget um, Bill Nye yeah Bill Nye is great he's this ageing actor who can't quite get over the fact that he's not being offered the hero roles anymore. He's being offered, like, the old you know, grandfather roles or the old uncle roles. And he's always gone on about his craft, and it's kind of like that moment in extras within Surrey and McKellen, talking about acting and acting. And you do it How well. do I act so well? <laughs> well, my, uh, my process, my method, if you will, is... Uh, and they... And he has moments like that. But then it also kind of has moments where he does act and he does have you know, big emotional scenes and you can kind of see there's a point there that, you know, to what he's saying, and, even and though he sounds like an ass when he says it. And even in the context of the film within the film, it's, you know, you get, I got a bit choked up. <laughs> there's that one scene where he... And you'll know, there is a, a scene that Bill Nighy has and it's the film within the film. And yeah, and, it's, and he does just turn it on and you do get affected by it and it's like, yeah, you are right. Um... I think part of Bill Nye is that he, you know, I think you've said um, previously, he can turn on a dime between comedy and you know, and real underplayed emotion, and it's it's all around like the he's not a, a big he's not a big actor. It's all around the edges of his face. It really is, isn't it? And and yeah, he's just he, there's, there, I think more so than you know many and any other actor that immediately comes to mind. I'm sure there are. I'm sure you might be. Able to, he brings this tremendous subtlety that on the other hand is very specific there's also uh, a moment of tragedy in their finest that you're not going to spoil obviously but heavens does it is it one of those things where that clearly worked alright in the book but that almost destroyed the film yeah it sort of almost stops the production yeah it really it's like it, it's like wow okay you have done this and this is now where we're going and with this and out of nowhere really it's one of those things where it's like okay you, I think you've lost me now and I was really enjoying that because, and, because it seems to be earning this happy ending <coughs> that's just on the horizon <coughs> and then you know and then something happens it comes out of the sky like a ton of bricks and just changes everything yeah it does bring it back from there Thank God, because if it was one of those, if it didn't, it would be then that would be what you would talk about as soon as you started talking about the film. You would say it's a great film, and then it completely ruins itself. This doesn't do that, but I would love to know what the script meetings were about. How are we going to do this? And I would, I'd imagine that they might even have thought of changing it because it 
is so abrupt on film, whereas in a book it would it it could just work better. Um, but their finest, I thought, was yeah, was really really good. So you've talked about your stinker, which is Journey of Time or Journey Through Time, or the Voyage of Time. Voyage sorry, of time. sorry, Voyage <laughs> of Time, the Journey, a uh, Voyage of Time, Journey of Life. Jesus, dump made by <laughs> made by Terence of Malick. My disappointment was the Wailing, and the Wailing is the South Korean thriller by. I will have to look it up. Sorry, he's the guy who did the Yellow Sea and Chaser, Na Hong Jin, and this is a. And lots of people have really liked this film, and uh, I mean, I read one thing on Twitter from someone that I'm following and said it was their, it was their film of the festival. It's a big, it's an epic horror film. It's two hours and thirty six minutes. It's uh, in a rural South Korean village. People are just going mad, breaking out in rashes, pustules, and they're murdering their loved ones in really, really bloody ways. You buried the lead there a little bit. Hey, you buried the lead. Yeah. Symptoms include. You know, rashes, pustules, and, bur- and murdering the loved yes, one. Yes, you are. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> to build up to something, don't you? Yes, yes. Yeah, you are burying the lead. There like if I was bit. reading that on the side of on a packet of medication, I <laughs> got to the bottom. So, I was like, uh, sorry, did you not leave with that one? Um, so basically, they've got aggressive eczema. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, they do kill everyone around them as well. <laughs> Oh, that's that's something as well, isn't it? Sl- slightly itchy and homicidal. Yes, indeed. They've got real itchy. And is is that because of the itchiness? It, it could be. Itchy the killer. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Oh, that's really good anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and in this one, it's it's a it's just a big horror film, and uh, so they're not sure whether uh, if the strange. Japanese man, so again, it ties back to the handmaiden in terms of um, Korea's view of its of its past under Japanese rule. And there's uh, this Japanese guy who has come over. He's like an old Japanese man, played by Jun Kunimura, who is the lead from Audition. He um, lives in the woods in this cabin. He's a stranger, and everyone says it's because of him. It's because of him that all this is happening, and this slightly slow-witted police sergeant has to you know, work out you know, why this is happening because it starts to affect someone very, very close to him. There's bits of The Exorcist in there. There's bits of The Shining in there. It's, um, it's a big... It's a, it's a big kind of like you know, grab bag of lots of different you know, horror ticks and tropes. And it has some absolutely standout moments in there. There are two exorcisms in there that are kind of yeah, Korean-style exorcisms. So there's lots of um, banging of drums and kind of like... It's, uh, it's yeah, an exorcism that you don't see in the West, whereas ours is very like yeah, Catholic. This one is kind of like yeah, from a completely different religion. And, it's, um, and they're really striking moments, but it just does not hang together at all. And it just doesn't it becomes really quite an incoherent mess by the end and I have to admit I, yeah, I was a bit disappointed when I stumbled out of it so a slog with occasional moments of genius yes indeed yes I was not whooping about the wailing I have to admit I've sort of forced segue talking of auditions yeah La La Land oh that's so good <laughs> that's really good as well not as good as Issue the Killer that was the <laughs> You peaked there, so... <laughs> it's all downhill. It's all downhill from here. No, it's not, because La La Land was, uh, was, was an absolute delight. Was Yeah, it was one of our joint f- films of the festival. Indeed, mm, definitely. Um, well, I know that you absolutely love Whiplash, which was the last film by Damien Chazelle, so do you want to 
Tell us about La La Land. La La Land is a, a love letter to the golden age of Hollywood musicals, and that's the most that's the very obvious thing to say about it. But it takes place in in modern day Los Angeles, and uh, is is also this uh, this romance uh, st- uh, the romance between. Uh, Sebastian, played by uh, Ryan Gosling, who's this virtuoso piano player. He's forced to hold down gigs that are sort of below his dignity. But as this, you know, this is and is obsessed with the integrity of jazz as an art form. And you know, in, in other hands, you know, his, I want to punch him. Yeah, your pretension could his pretension <laughs> could be unbearable were it not that Ryan Gosling brings that same lightness of touch and a slightly self-effacing humour that he has in uh, in uh, the Nice Guys. Yeah, indeed. That's the thing is that. You should hate Ryan Gosling because he is incredibly handsome, incredibly ripped, very talented. And he plays his own piano. In the, 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 the he piano. plays his own piano. He can act. He can dance. Um, he can do all these different things. I mean, this is someone that you should really just want to watch getting hit over and over again, like in um, Only God Forgives. All the nice guys. All the nice guys, yeah. it's uh, But he... He is just a charisma factory. He is. He just has this really nice line in undercutting humour. He does not mind playing up the pomposity of his characters, and then and then having that pricks basically. And uh, and and completely his equal in the film. Somebody, you know, I, I think she hopefully will get an Oscar nom for it. Emma Stone playing Mia. This. Um, audition. This this aspiring actress who works a job at the coffee shop on the Warner Brothers back lot. And um, there are some great scenes of her auditioning, and sort of that, that, that talk about the sort of the um, the not the cruelty, but the offhandedness of the business, where in which people emotionally invest so much, just to even get in the door. And essentially, it's it's a love story between the two of them that initially has sort of overtones of um, uh, Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds and Singing in the Rain that they don't initially like each other very much yeah. and uh, my, my favourite musical sequence of the film is I can't remember what the title is called it's like in you know, A Night Like This which is them on this uh, on this hillside with an absolutely glorious <coughs> Hollywood dawn breaking in the background behind them as they both feign disinterest in both the sunset and each other or the sunrise sunrise so is it, so, yeah, sorry sunrise and each other and you also have all of LA down there as well that's my favourite musical moment from the film as well. It's so well done, isn't it? And, um, uh, yeah, essentially, the film, as well as having these glorious musical numbers, it opens up with this full big band, um, roof-tapping swing, <laughs> you know, absolutely, you know, with, with probably looks like hundreds of people mm. on this, on this uh, gridlocked freeway. And... But it's also really true to the emotions that you know their uh, their hopes and their dreams and their disillusionment and what you what you give up in order to achieve success and the compromises you're forced to make. Yeah, indeed. It's, I mean, that's the thing is that I thought that uh, I didn't think it was as good as Whiplash. I thought the Whiplash was I thought the Whiplash was was more focused. I mean, yeah, you know, different films and it just shows what a great writer director. Yeah, yeah um, well, well, both, both about music and about accomplishment in different ways. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, so he's continuing his themes there. But this one, I mean, it was just a delightful confection. I mean, it looks stunning. It's an absolute joy to watch. The leads are just absolutely wonderful, aren't they? It's, um, I mean, they really do have that old-school charisma. But it's also mixed with a, a quite... Yeah, there is some grit within the whipped cream, as I put in in my review. It's kind of uh, that they... 
are on hard times and also there is no it there's no guarantee that their dreams are going to come true um there's that great scene with Emma Stone when she's talking about saying what if I am just one of those people for whom this is just a pipe dream but I want it so bad and I've worked for it so hard but it's never going to happen why I can't just keep doing this for years on the off chance that it it's going to happen because it probably isn't going to happen and that kind of reminded me actually of the David Brent film but uh which also covers you know similar things like that um, she gets um, in in the song, which I believe is called "Audition." She gets her own "I Dreamed a Dream" moment. Was it "Fools Who Dream"? Is that what it's called? Uh, something like yes, that? something like. Which is going to be nominated for best song, isn't it? Yeah, that's the thing. I think I think songs from this film could fill out the entire roster of nominees yeah. for best song. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's like pop star, I suppose, in a way. The Andy Samberg. It's almost exactly like pop star. I mean, this is the Andy Samberg. Andy Samberg is the new. Die Courtney of this it's like you have to get at least a mention of him in there in that the songs in this are proper songs they are a joy to listen to they are you know they propel the story forward you would listen to them outside the context of the film yep indeed but within the context of the film they absolutely tell the story it's not like it's not a musical where everything just stops so you can watch some people dancing and and singing it's like a proper you know Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers or a Gene Kelly musical it's uh, yeah and it really again it's like you know well yeah so Damien Chazelle you're disgustingly talented as well then well, that's fine it was really quite something yeah so moving on to um, <laughs> so I didn't see because I was ill The Birth of a Nation yeah what is there to say about The Birth of a Nation to be honest not that much it's a film that sadly would have been more interesting five years ago and uh, before 12 Years a Slave and that's uh, sorry it sounds reductive to say that spate of films but before the the dramatisation of slavery in high profile artistically impressive films you know um, and the fact that the controversy surrounding the, the writer director star Nate Parker will like uh, will likely sink it, so and, the, and and the, as, as it has done the box office, it's done. Yeah, it hasn't done that well, has it? So what's the? Has it been released in the states? Yeah, yeah it's been released in the it. states. It's about um, Nat Turner, who in about 1840 in Virginia led the slave rebellion. Before which, uh, he was a preacher, a, 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 a black preacher who his master sort of used to take him around the plantations and use him to quell any sort of talks of uprising or generally placate the slaves no matter how badly they were being treated very much preaching turn the other cheek and how certain events, tragedies that um, befell him and those he cared about what uh, led him to essentially lead, you know, led him to completely change his mind on that one of which uh, is fictionalised and uh, I've, I've, I've heard a case made that in light of the charges against uh, Nat, uh, against um, Nate Parker it doesn't it really kind of leads to bad taste right uh, um, it's you know it's incredible it's it's beautifully shot and it's well acted and there is there's a lot more yeah, it, it, there's a touch of the, the Mel Gibson to it in terms of the the, the the righteous anger behind you know the film does involve the uh, murder is yeah no it is murder it's, you know the film makes a very strong case for why they deserved it but at the time it happens it is definitely murder uh. um, but the fi- but it's never quite I've heard it described as incendiary and it's not quite that because it is very well reasoned and it does you know it it, it builds it builds horrifically to 
the final um, to, to the rebellion. Again, it's, it's a film that again it's very difficult to talk about because there's so there are so many different issues it, you know it addresses and surrounding it. Yeah, that you know ultimately for a film that is not that is less than astonishing. As I say, I, mean, I do I do like the fact that it's called the birth of a nation because of course it's kind of reappropriating. It's a, re- the, it's a reclamation. Yeah, um, yeah, the D.W. Griffith nineteen fifteen film the birth of a nation which of course is deliriously racist and is one of those really difficult films because it was very groundbreaking technically and a lot of what we see today as film grammar in the way that films are made can be traced back to to that film the birth of a nation but it's also a film that, uh, that glorifies the Ku Klux Klan basically and says that you know that freeing the slaves was the worst thing that could have have happened to America so uh, it's not a very nice film to be honest and um, and even though it is yeah, technically quite astonishing sometimes it is a bit of a slog what you watch in no I was about to say watch Intolerance and said Intolerance is also a slog oh god Intolerance is four hours but it's, it's, it's <laughs> okay what it what it what it <laughs> When it loses, it, when it makes up in length, it also makes up in not being deliriously racist. No, it's one of those films where um, there's lots of lots of controversy around whether he made that as an apology for the birth of a nation. He says he didn't, and those close to him say didn't. And also, yeah, film historians say no because Intolerance was well underway while the birth of a nation was you know, smashing box office records and stuff like that. So it wouldn't have been that he had anything that he felt he should apologise for. Um, I mean, if you're going to watch a D.W. Griffith film, I would recommend Broken Blossoms. Yes. Um, which is very good, but again, you have to remember that it's, uh, I think that is, is that 1919 maybe? Close um, enough to a century ago. That... Yeah, it's 100 years ago. Uh, so Lillian Gish, who is one of the great old film stars of uh, silent cinema, is a flower girl um, who lives in you know, the Limehouse district of London, and uh, she friends a Chinese immigrant um, and who works it in this opium den and and he was a missionary but he's been corrupted by the just you know the Sodom and Gomorrah of London um, we as we all have yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's I it, it is a very very good film it is a film in which the Chinese character is played by someone who's who western in- with their eyes pulled back and it was seen as very progressive at the time, but a hundred years later, it's seen as less progressive. Um, but it is one of those films. That its I think heart is in the right place. Its heart was in the right place then, and it's just that a lot of the things that it says now, in terms of some of the slang names that were just taken as fine then, and fine in the 1970s as well. To be honest, today don't sit as well. <coughs> yeah. So the birth of a nation. You also saw Dog Eat Dog just very very quickly, um, which is a new one by Paul Schrader. Yeah, with them um, and Nick Cage and Defoe. Uh it's a mess. Uh it's in almost tediously indulgent. It's you know, at this seedy, paranoid, neon crime film with everybody basically everybody just going off the wall and the the story it tells the the the, fun, the, 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 the you know, the story at the heart of it, you know, one of it involving a kidnapped baby is nothing we haven't seen before. It's got no Race pay- Arizona. And, <laughs> and and it's got no payoff. And essentially, the film is more con- is more interested in the conventions of crime films <laughs> than in being a crime film. That's a real shame because Schrader was once a very very good writer director. It's weird because and uh, Nicolas Cage was in Snowden as well, and Snowden 
contrary to all the bad things I'd heard about it, I thought it was actually a very solid film. Um, and a bit of a return to form for Oliver Stone. And Nicolas Cage has a small part in there, and he was good. It's about a hibernating bear, right? Snowden, yeah, indeed, yeah, it is. It's about a hibernating bear. Who is Oliver Stone? Who is Oliver Stone? Who, <laughs> who then comes and makes this good film? He is now out of hibernation. Hurrah. Welcome back, Oliver. Okay, so I think we should... Well, actually, as we were talking about La La Land, La La Land was an interesting one to get into, wasn't it? Yes. Because... Interesting is, is, is a word. There are there are other words. And this is, this is one where we kind of, I don't know, we might lose the audience a bit on this one. It is a real first world problem. But then again, it's like, well, if you're given a press pass... So basically, um, the way that, that the London Film Festival works is that in the past, the really big gala films that are likely to draw a really big audience are shown at the Odeon Leicester Square, which is, I think, a 1,500-seat cinema or something like that. There's more than enough space for everyone. But this year, quite a number of the big films, including the closing film, Free Fire, were put on at the Picture House. And the Picture House is it's a very nice cinema. It's yeah it has lots of different screens. Um, it's near Piccadilly Circus but it has much smaller screens. So that's fine if you're showing something like, I don't know, Your Name, which was this great anime. Um, But if you're showing La La Land, which is the follow-up to Whiplash, which was shown at the Odeon when it was at the London Film Festival and is a must-see film, you're not going to squeeze everyone into a 340-seat cinema. And the queue we joined was just you know, snaking down towards Leicester Square, wasn't it? it was, yeah, yeah. Which is, if you don't know London, it was just going a very, very long way. It was like a queue that was about, I don't know, how long do you reckon? 600 people? 600 people Minimum. that went on. Yeah, indeed, and it was kind of like... So it, so it was, it was about a 600-foot queue that was going across roads and stuff to get in. And I talked to the... Um, uh, to the press team saying is there going to be you know another press screening of this because people weren't getting in they said it was the distributor's choice to show it there rather than at, at the Odeon which we figured out seems to translate <coughs> as the, the, the distributor's choice not to pay for the Odeon Leicester Square yeah which I would I would ask that they come to some kind of better arrangement in terms of subsidising because honestly guys that was not the best way to do it it was also one of those things where there was lots of queue jumping happening and it was it was not the best way to go in to watch La La Land, which is a very kind of like you know, buoyant film and it starts off with this absolute blast, but when you're you know sitting there a little bit worked up because you've had to um you know stand in a in a queue for an hour and I don't know, it just yeah, it does seem like a first world problem, but it was it's just the fact that it it was so different to how it was handled in the past. And it, it was is, a bit surprising. It's the reason we both missed Nocturnal Animals, the new Tom Ford film today, which I was really looking forward to seeing. Uh, it's because we made the choice that, to get in the queue for Free Fire, especially early, which turned out to be probably the right decision. Yeah. Um, rather than risk, you know, having, having having only a half an hour gap between the end of Nocturnal Animals and the start of Free Fire, you know, the chance of us getting in would have been minimal. Yeah, indeed. And that's... That's not really the choice that you should have to make, really, because you have Nocturnal Animals, Tom Ford, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal film. It's a big, it's a gala film, a yeah, big film at the LFF. Yeah, Amy Adams, Amy Michael Adams. Shannon, like you know, really great ensemble. And then you and you have to make a choice between seeing that or the closing film of the London Film Festival, you know, Free Fire, because Free Fire is being shown in 
Picture House One, which is the 341-seat screening room, rather than the Odeon, where it will be shown on Sunday night, which is the big 1500-seat, whatever it is. If it's your closing film, you have to come to to some kind of better arrangement, because it was was a mess this year. And we saw someone who jumped the queue and and got into an argument with... uh, he just couldn't understand why people were so angry that he had just walked in and jumped the queue. And there was this American woman who was very, very patiently explaining why this might be an issue because there are other people queuing who have joined the back of the queue. And he was just being so obtuse. It what, was what, so weird. And, and with the hat he was wearing, was it? It wasn't a trilby, but was it? <coughs> it was like a. It was kind of like a pork pie hat, but it was. It was. Yeah. It he was, basically looked like a discount Bond villain. Yes, he did look like a discounted bomb villain. He was just a bit of a tit, wasn't he? And it was uh, it was still going on when we were sitting down because he was sitting behind us, wasn't he? And he was saying, I can't believe the animosity here. I just can't believe the animosity here. And, and this American woman was kind of saying, but... You but, jumped you, the queue. But you cut in line. You cut in line. And it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm with her because really... You just can, think... Can you not see why we were upset by this? And that's the thing. I mean, he was the one who re-engaged, you know, who, who picked the fight again when he got in the cinema. <coughs> like... Dude, no one's going to be on your side. Sit down and shut up. Yeah, because you jumped the queue about five minutes before we all started going in, and you weren't even like initially. You weren't. It's not even like you did it surreptitiously. And then he kind of waited until some people had gone in, and he snuck onto the back of the queue. And it's like, I'm sorry, press team, but you need to have if if this is going to be a thing where the picture house is going to have big press screenings for you know, key films, which are going to mean that we're going to have these long lines that snake out of the cinema down the street around the corner across the road you have to have a team who are going to manage the queuing of that for that film because because there is a lot of the uh, what is it it's, it's uh, the Larry is it Larry Clark's um, oh Larry David Larry from, David, uh, from yeah. Caribbean Enthusiasm the lot of the uh, chat and cut chat and cut yeah where you sort of like yeah you sidle up someone you know you kind of like talk for a bit and then you're just kind of in the queue then aren't you and it's uh, there was lots of there's been lots of that going on because I had a friend who in La La Land, this guy we work with, again, called a few people out who were doing it, saying, no, can you not see the queue? The queue is going back. You have to go to the end. We all got here early. But ultimately, there needs to be a better agreement with the Odeon Lesser Square to hire it out because, yeah, these big films need to be on there um, if everyone's going to get in. And, you know, we are paying for press passes now. So, um, they are, so yeah. It is a revenue stream. Yeah. But it looks like uh, the BFI is trying to maximise without necessarily accounting for the increased number of people. Yes, indeed. And um, I did hear that it was uh, it was particularly easy to get a press pass this year. There was some talk in the La La Land queue. I've not had it verified, so it, it, you know, it could be bunkum. But, um, but people saying that you could start a blog and put a single review on and yeah, send that off and you would be accredited. Um, so if you're listening to this and you presumably have an interest in films and are based in the London area next try next year might be worth a shot yeah indeed or maybe not it's like kind of uh, if you're going to do the London Film Festival just just do it properly and just like you know, write up what you see and uh, yeah, but, yeah it might be worth a shot but you know <coughs> do, do actually do your, we'll do your, you do your do job it. but do your yeah, job that's do right your, do yes it. indeed yeah. and if it isn't your job make it your job for the purpose of the festival that's right yeah I mean like yeah, we weren't paid for what we've done but, uh, but we write reviews and tweeting and facebooking about it and uh, and most of it really really positive it was just this one thing that I thought wasn't particularly well handled this year they need a proper queue management system if this is going to become a thing next year as well um, but anyway that's kind of uh, that's that's my moan of the festival so before we get on to Free Fire which is a closing film just a, just a couple of the films that we couldn't see 
that I heard some good things about. Um, so Trespass Against Us, um, which is, I think is a thriller with Michael Fassbender and um, Brendan Gleeson. Heard nothing but good things about that. Apparently that's that's you know, one to look out for. Um, Ethel and Ernest, which is based on the Raymond Briggs graphic novel, I suppose you would call it, about his parents and their marriage, I think just before World War Two, and then you know, having him and their lives... The graphic novel is absolutely lovely, um, and I was really looking forward to this, and I just couldn't make it into town because I was so ill, which was really annoying. But I, again, I hear that's like a real tearjerker, and absolutely fantastic. What were the ones that you wanted to get on to see? Not Eternal um, Animals, obviously. <laughs> Lo and Behold, the Werner Herzog documentary. About the I, internet. Yeah, I believe I, I chose to see Prevenge over that because I couldn't quite handle another documentary yes. with existential overtones <laughs> after, I mean I'm sure I mean Werner at least would have been talking and explicating and with his wonderfully sort of sh- uh, acute it. <laughs> oh, um, uh, well, what should I say what to this is the internet <laughs> this is the internet <laughs> yeah That's okay Stephen Hawking. <laughs> the problem is my Werner Herzog quickly turns into my Stephen Hawking. But what a Stephen Hawking! <laughs> it's amazing. Um, I so we bumped into someone that um, that I used to work with, <clears throat> and she said that she was a bit disappointed by Lo and Behold. She thought it was a bit superficial, and which is a shame. It's because uh, I don't think that because because yeah, there is a great documentary to be had about the internet, and it's probably a series. Um, but I don't think it's been made Not yet. to be patronising again, Werner Herzog's another deeply intelligent man. Is it, an, is it a series to be made by a younger person? Yeah, yeah, I think so. There's Somebody a... who, of the generation for whom the internet is... Not a thing to be scared by. Or, or who essentially is just, it's always been part of their life. Yeah, and that's the thing, is I, kind of, I think it would be absolutely fascinating to, uh, to have that. There's, um, there, was a, there was a documentary and I... And it was a couple of years ago, and I did review it, and it wasn't—it wasn't particularly good. It was, um, and let me just quickly find my review of it to see. In real life, all one word, um, and it was a documentary directed by B. Bon Kidron, uh, who did the Bridget Jones sequel, and oranges are not the only fruit. And basically, she was. Uh, so the reason why she did it was because she was at a funeral and saw lots of people with, you know, lots of young kids were texting during the funeral. And she thought, well, I, 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 yeah, I can't believe you're doing that. It's just yeah, so inappropriate. But you don't seem to think it is. So what is you know, young people's relationship to technology? And she looks at online dating and like you know, shaming and, um, and, the, and the dark web and you know, gaming addiction and, like, you know, um, and YouTube celebrities. I mean, it's, it's a real kind of like, you know, it's... It's a 90-minute documentary to try to bring everything into it. Some of it's interesting, but ultimately, again, it's superficial and is made by someone who is terrified of the internet. It's uh, So it's like, well, it doesn't really go into the fact that you can talk to anyone now and that there's this... It, you know, it has become a global village. nexus of communication yeah. for anybody you, you know, with, with an internet access. And I think you're right. Or I think it's like... Better. Yeah, not to be patronising to Virona, but uh, I... I, yeah, it could be. When it comes to talk, explicating on human nature and the way we are and why we do the things we do, I don't think there's anyone better. But when it comes to the internet, which is a very specific, which requires a degree of technical knowledge, yeah. But it could have worked better as as a series that he made, maybe. Yeah. But, um, um, so the ones that the wanted to see but couldn't. Um, so Franz, which is a new one by Francois Ozon. Excuse me. Um, Tower 
which is an animated documentary about the Charles Whitman shootings, I think in the 60s when he went to the top of a university tower in Austin, Texas and shot a lot of people one afternoon. Um, it's apparently yeah, a fantastic documentary about that. We Are X, which is a documentary about the Japanese equivalent to the rock band Kiss, um, which a friend of mine said was absolutely fantastic and like a real life affirming, just a, yeah, a wonderful documentary about this really you know, fantastic band. Um, I think Gene Simmons from Kiss said if these guys were American, then yeah, you'd be listening to them instead of Kiss. And uh, what, if I'm said, not, what if I'm not listening to Kiss? <laughs> yeah, what if I listen to Kiss, then um, then you're probably listening to uh, I don't know. Um, so, still, then maybe <laughs> because they're so amazing. Apparently, um, I've been sent the screening link to that, so I am looking forward to watching that one. That's that's We Are X. But shall we move on to Free Fire as the yes. closing film? Shall we close the podcast with that? Yeah, I am. Yes, uh, <coughs> should, actually, should we do a very quick rundown of things that we saw individually? Yeah, of, of, of anything yeah, else that outstanding? Do you want to go first? If there's well, we haven't talked about Brimstone yet, have we? So we need to talk about that because <laughs> we need to come come to blows at some point. Okay, well, let's go through something, something definitely smells eggy. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Sorry, that was really Very good. Well done. You did peek with it to the killer, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> should we do our respective top tens of the festival? Um, yes, yes, that, that's, um, okay. I've got mine written down. Uh, oh, it's, well. changed, it's changed somewhat. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> uh, my top films will be um, uh, probably in a rough order Manchester by the Sea, uh, Moonlight, which is this astonishing triptych about uh, this young black kid growing up in Florida and it takes and there, there are scenes set, you know when he's uh, when he's a young kid and when he's a teenager and when he's an adult dealing with uh, his sexuality and uh, and the, and the poverty and the sort of and the poverty he's growing up in and it manages to do that it's, it's a plea for sort of beauty and dignity and it's got this real it never gets weighed down with the the ugliness of you know of of uh, uh, sorry ugliness doesn't even doesn't even enter into it yeah even saying it reminded me strangely of carol in terms of that there being an innate plea for uh, for a better world <coughs> and for a world with understanding and i it, it was the earliest film i saw in the festival it was actually i saw it before the festival officially kicked off uh, so my memories of it are slightly hazy um, but I just yeah I remember it being at the time you were saying it, it was a five star film yeah it's, yeah it's definitely one of my films of the year it's an intensely beautiful film um, uh, after which I'd say A Monster Calls The Handmaiden La La Land A Quiet Passion which is uh, the new Terence Davies film about uh, Emily Dickinson the poet she's being played by Cynthia Nixon who is this you know wonderful talent uh, you know incredibly <laughs> witty acute uh, living in a world dominated by men who essentially her own uh, neuroses and obsession with, integri- with personal integrity uh, uh, begin to sort of twist her into somebody who's, who can be quite unpleasant and quite unkind and how that influences relationships with her family um, and then there's Free Fire which we'll discuss very shortly uh, Arrival by uh, uh, Deli- Denny Villeneuve Um <laughs> Dennis Villeneuve <laughs> uh, about uh, yeah. essentially based on a, a short story a novella called I think The Story of Your Life which is actually a somewhat more revealing title that um, uh, Amy Adams uh, communicator attempting to communicate with an alien race 
uh, 12 crafts of whom have appeared around around the earth and is sort of uh, plunging humanity into panic and the fa- and the the extent to which you can make no assumptions when you're trying to communicate with an alien species about you know any any commonalities yeah and it's a film in which you can actually make no assumptions about it uh, and there, there, yeah, there's, there's, there's a very, there's a very, there's a powerful but slightly, I found slightly neat payoff to it. Um, that oh, very that, neat, yeah, very yeah. neat. And there's Lion uh, about uh, starring starring uh, Dev Patel and Rooney Mara, who's again, who's, who's sort of a, a real MVP of this festival, about a young um, Indian kid who uh, basically ended up thousands of miles from home, well, thousand, you know, thousand miles from home. And ended and uh, grew up in. He was adopted and taken to Australia, <laughs> and then desired to find his way home. And it's it's by uh, it's a Harvey Weinstein's producing, so it's got the, it, there's the danger of being very worthy, but it kind of it earns its payoff. Uh, then there's their uh, uh, their finest. There's also Prevenge, which Rob mentioned earlier about the Alice Lowe about uh, a mum who's uh, a pregnant woman who's urged to murder by her unborn child. And Birth of a Nation that didn't, that didn't make my top ten. Right. Okay. That's. Uh... That's not a bad one. Um, so I'll, I'll quickly run through mine, and then we'll talk about Brimstone afterwards, and then just very quickly, and then move on to Free Fire. So The Handmaiden was the number one film for me. <coughs> that might change though, because A Monster Calls is just it just runs such a close second. The emotional punch to um, A Monster Calls I just thought was so great. But right now that's my number two. Number three, Una. Number four. Brimstone, the contentious Brimstone. Yeah. Number five is um, La La Land. Number six is the anime Your Name, directed by Makoto Shinkai, who is um, he's a very well, he's a great anime director. He did a film called The Place Promised in Our Early Days and Five Centimeters Per Second, I think. Um, he's not as well known as yeah, someone like. Miyazaki or or the Studio Ghibli brand but he makes these really great love stories that are very very metaphysical and there's always something about the universe trying to keep people apart Um, and Your Name is kind of like a body swap film Um, so it's about these couple of high school kids um, a girl who lives out in rural Japan and this young lad that lives in Tokyo and they keep swapping bodies and they don't know why and they you have to write each other notes on their arms and stuff like that to say, right, so who are you? And, you know, and why is this happening? And what are you doing? And could you not you know, do these things that you're doing with my life? Because people you know, keep saying that I'm acting weird. And it's really, really sweet and really you know, nicely balanced and well-judged, even to the point where, of course, he's a young, he's a hormonal teen who wakes up in a girl's body. He can't stop touching her breasts, but they're his breasts. And, um, and it sounds really creepy, but actually it's, it's really funny. Um, and it's yeah, actually quite sweet. After half hour of that, because it's in the official competition for the London Film Festival, and I was thinking, wow, had they just not seen an anime before and were just utterly charmed by the beauty of the animation and just the kind of, just the, you know, the light souffle of um, of the storytelling. And then half hour in, it takes a big shift into something else and becomes, yeah, much more metaphysical. It's about the peril of the universe, basically. It, it takes on these really, really big themes and... Uh, and it's really interesting where it just understands that you know what a body swap film is so it kind of starts in the middle of it and doesn't you know, feel the need to explain everything and uh, yeah I thought that was really good so Your Name is well worth a look L so we've, you know, we've talked about that one Prevenge you talked about that Free Fire and Their Finest that was my number 10 so Brimstone hmm. 
So Brimstone is a film starring... It is certainly a film. It is certainly... It's a big film. And the thing is that, yeah, Brimstone is... It's a big... It's just a banquet of a film. It's two and a half hours. Yeah, it's not, it's not necessarily a banquet you want to eat. Oh, I just... I had a, <laughs> I had a good meal. <laughs> um, directed by Martin Kohlhoven. Um, and I have to admit, I wasn't particularly familiar with his work before. I mean, I'd, I'd heard of his last film, Winter in Wartime, made in 2008. So this is like eight years since his last movie. So Dakota Fanning, uh, the start of the film, she is set in, in the Midwest in the 19th century. Uh, she is a, uh, a woman who lives with her husband, who's a, a bit older than her. Um, they have a daughter... He has a son from another marriage. She's a midwife, um, so she, you know, delivers the kids for um, for the town in which they live. It's like a farming community. One day, a preacher turns up. You're forgetting another important fact about her. I haven't though. Um, okay, sorry. <laughs> we'll let we'll it back out. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, one day, a preacher turns up, and the preacher is played by Guy Pearce, and there is something very, very ominous about him. For reasons that you don't know, she seems very worried about about his arrival. But she can't really explain these fully to people around her because she can't speak. She's mute. And and you find out why she's mute as uh, as the film goes on. But, but but she can sign and she signs to to her family. Um it's told in chapters. Uh, and it feels like a big novel, I and mean, it's a very you know, novelistic film. It flashes backwards and forwards. It has like yeah recurring themes. It has yeah recurring um, uh, visual themes and story themes. It's like a gothic melodrama, and it is a horror film basically. And it's a mystery. It's lots of different things in one. It also reminded me of uh, of the woman's picture from the nineteen forties. Um, yeah, films like Mildred Pierce and things like that, but. Um, where you would have a woman who is incredibly put upon and, and really has to fight for her place in the world. This is a film that you know, goes out of its way to prove what a patriarchal world this woman lives in. But those women's films from the 1940s would never be able to get away with the really quite strong content that you see in this film. It's weird. It's one of those films... I mean, I loved it, and I and also thought that it... And it looks amazing. It kind of... It's odd in that it's, it's a really big and impressive film, but I don't think it's going to get a lot of awards attention. And I think it's because... It's also like a bedfellow to something like Cape Fear or um, you know, Night of the Hunter, Hunter and, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. I mean, it looks amazing, but it, it has like a also a graphic novel look to it in some ways. It's um, but uh, but it was one of those. I mean, it also stars Kit Harrington, Carice Van Uten. Says so you know some um, some Game of Thrones alumni in there as well. It was a film that, as I was watching it, I thought so. Our friend Tim. I thought this isn't his you know, his sort of film. He didn't like L. He's not going to like this one. And I could sense that you weren't completely on board with it either. It's a film about, <coughs> uh, largely about persecution and suffering, largely of of women under the sort of the the yoke of the patriarchal, uh, especially given the given the time period. But I just didn't find it that interesting. I thought a lot of the themes it dealt with were dealt with more interestingly and uh, with more shading in um, The Handmaiden mm. and I just found I found you know you could, there are lots of you know words you can use to describe Guy Pearce's 
character in that you know he's got you know he's he's very devilish he's going to bring he's sort of you know got this gravelly voice and the, the black suit and the and the dark eyes and he's just you know this implacable force i just didn't find him particularly i mean there's no it's a it's a very fire and brimstone film mm. it's it's a film that really that really does live up to its title but it did seem to me that there was the potential for endless permutations on this film because it really does drive home its point. In while not, I found, in my opinion, not necessarily doing that much else at the same time. See, I thought it was one of those that uh, that I mean, yeah, you're right. It was. I mean, it's about ultimately two and a half hours long. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What was it about? It was about two and a half hours. <laughs> the um. It's, and it is about, in a way, uh, sainthood. Yeah, Lars von Trier could have directed a film like this. I mean, like, yeah, what what the Dakota Fanning character is put through is kind of similar to what a Lars von Trier heroine is put through, which I think is another reason why people might not like, you know, like this film. I mean, our friend Tim thought it kind of reveled in the degradation. Well, yeah, kind of like yeah, yeah, the hardship and the degradation and the things that she had to endure. I think I didn't. So you did revel in that. I thought, yeah, you would never because the film never approved of it. It was one of those where I thought it didn't, it didn't, you know, wallow in it. Um, and I really, I mean, I really like the just, you know, the ambition of it. And you said that you felt it could have just gone on and on and on forever and ever and ever because they wouldn't have and just done the same thing ever again. I thought it was actually much more rigidly structured than that. And I thought that the four chapters, I mean, I could kind of see where it was going. That's the thing is that it's it's one of those films that. You kind of know where some of it's going. There's, um, I mean, there's like a big story shift in there that I kind of guess, but it was still good to watch it unfold in front of me. Um, so it's a story shift that makes it feel appropriate that it's got two, like Prevenge, it's got two Game of Thrones alums in there. Yes, yeah, so that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a really a good time with Brimstone in thinking like this is proper gothic cinema um, with yeah a really good role for Dakota Fanning. Who hasn't really done much recently? I don't think. Actually, I mean, Elle Fanning's been like more in the limelight than she has. Oh yeah, Elle Fanning obviously did uh, Neon Demon and Brimstone is a film that made me think. I wish this this was. I wish this was based on a gothic novel. I wish there was a book behind this. In the same way that I've never found any adaptation of Wuthering Heights entirely satisfying. It's not a very good book. <gasps> it's not. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but. Um... This is the best adaptation you're going to get of Wuthering Heights. <laughs> oh god, that's, that's, a, that's a sad come down for. Uh... So this is the final Electric Shadows podcast with the two two Robs. It turns out. No um... offense, this is actually seeming like it's been a very amicable blowout. Yeah, like, that's right. You might have been hoping for more drama. Yeah, but we know something slightly more you know, combative than this. But we're basically just trying to go. No, I think I think we've reached a point where <coughs> our differences are just on this one film are just too irreconcilable. We're going to have to part ways. That's it. Yeah, there could be no end of the year review now. But that's Brimstone. I mean, I it's out. Um, it's actually out very soon. It's the thirteenth of October. Is it out today then, or yesterday? What well, well, was that? The London Film Festival screening. I think. That, I'm sorry. Which maybe, IMDb maybe that might have been. The... Don't maybe given you know. Uh, I, there's there are other things in the cinema at the moment that perhaps. Oh, that is just London Film Festival. I would... Brimstone without, I would you know, go, and, go and watch it again. 
Um, go and see Inferno. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go and see Inferno. <laughs> um, although there is actually a brothel in Brimstone called the Inferno. Um, so there you go. Is that Tom Hanks just wandering around looking at painting? <laughs> yes. Slightly <laughs> dazed look on his face. What kind of paintings are you looking at? Anyway, so let's move on to Free Fire, which is the closing film of the London Film Festival. The new film from Ben Wheatley, who of course is the the Great British director of Kill List, Sightseers, High Rise, A Field in England, Down Terrace was his first film. He did some really good episodes of Doctor Who as well. And this is a... Was it... Ben Wheatley who described it as kind of the third act of a movie stretched out to be the entire movie yeah it's the uh, it's, it's, it's the shootout to end all shootouts it's a shootout to end all shootouts indeed and that's the thing is that it's so it's basically um, Killian Murphy and Michael Smiley play a couple of IRA terrorists um, who are who are doing an arms deal in this warehouse or like a um, an abandoned factory in Boston, and Charlotte Copley is the um, is a South African arms dealer, and so they're buying the weapons from him. Army Hammer is there as, and you kind of get the impression that he might have been you know, special forces or something at one point. But he's there basically as like a mediator to make sure that everything goes according to plan. Brie Larson is there. Um, I wasn't entirely sure what her part of the gang was but I think they were mediators on the on opposite sides right, okay. well, she was representing sense. the Irish and he was he was representing Charto yes Charto. Yeah, that makes complete sense Sam Riley's in it um, as but yeah basically just hired muscle um, and he gives quite a good performance he's kind of like yeah he's he's quite wild um, and there's other people in it as well it's kind of uh, and inevitably you know the the deal goes south and everyone pulls their guns out and the bullets start to fly and uh, and that happens quite early on and it does it does kind of just it is a shootout isn't it it is a shootout for about an hour there's lots of people you know crouched be like crouching behind concrete firing from cover crawling across you know the dirt and broken glass and trying to get weapons and trying to get their hands on the money and Reveling in in, <laughs> in other people's flesh wounds. It's a film that that has a there's a lot of comedic Schadenfreude in it, but it never becomes really that that re- it never like becomes that jubilantly nasty with it. No, it's um, yeah, you're right. It is a film that shows just how hard it is to kill somebody. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a lot of yeah, a lot of bullets going through flesh and things like that. Lots of suits get kind of uh, ruined in this film as well. But people equally, it's not totally unrealistic in that people do get worn down there is, and, mm. and they do get tired and you know, by the end of it when they're crawling across the you get the feeling it's because they can't get up and there's there's you know there's 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 explicit mention of the fact that you know if you leave it not that very long almost any bullet wound has the potential to kill you. Yeah, you will bleed out in about 90 minutes. Um and there's yeah, yeah, there's quite a good moment when when Killian Murphy says to one of the characters, "Just try and stay awake," and it's like, "Yeah, because you will just begin to pass out if you're losing this this much claret." But uh, and it is funny, and you know, Charles O'Copley's character is is just basically he is the comic relief. He's he's quite indignant at the fact that that people you know are shooting at him, and that's the you know that's another good thing is that people get annoyed that they're shot in this film. It's like they're just going, kind of like, "Oh, this is so annoying," and it's such a and now I'm shot and, and now and I can't and it, and it just leave. kind of like ah <laughs> <sighs> ow 
but then you get someone grinning yeah. because you know because someone that they really don't like has been shot and uh, it's very it's very Black Knight from Monty Python yes it is like that isn't it it's uh, and it is good I mean it's yeah I had a I had a good fun time with it and it and it is quite inventive I mean it has a it has some really good moments of really quite good splatter. It's like there's there's one moment that you will know when you see it where it's like bloody hell. <laughs> um, but again, but again, it's not it's not gratuitous with it. And one thing I really appreciate about the film is it it, it, it escalates, but never to the point of absurdity. Oh, I'd and... say that it is. Oh, I'd say that, that there is like an absurdity in there, just in terms of the. Oh, in terms of uh, it's treated as like kind of just this absurd thing that's happening, and everyone's kind of just being. Oh, oh sorry, let me first. It's, it's very self-contained. Oh yeah, yeah, indeed, definitely. It's, you know, um, it you know the, the the and as people get more and more exhausted, and more and more desperate, it does. You know, it does. It, it is very funny, um, and also the fact that it never tries <coughs> to be anything more. Then I guess really pure and simple genre piece. There's a, there's a moment in there where it looks like it might be trying to make a point, and then it abruptly stops doing that. Because most times when you watch a film, the setting in a single place is like, okay, this is this is a metaphor for a country or for a situation or something like that. So you're thinking, okay, so this is a metaphor for America and its obsession with guns and yeah. a call for gun control. It's like, no, it's not that. It's um, it's just it's a it's a calling card movie basically. I think it's a it's a film that proves that Ben Wheatley can handle action, he can handle suspense, he can handle comedy, and he can handle some pretty big movie stars. Uh, it was filmed in Brighton. That yeah, was uh, the interiors. I think that that yeah, factory is in Brighton. Yeah, but you would think it's Boston. And in that way, I thought it's not as interesting as High Rise or his other films because it is. It is just yeah, basically a good shoot 'em up, and and we have been there before with things like you know, Reservoir Dogs is the most obvious example of people trapped in a, a warehouse in a single space. Yeah, it's kind of like yeah, which is a warehouse. There's a there's another film called Unknown, which is it's not the Liam Neeson one. Um, this one stars this one's unknown. Yeah, indeed, it's uh, it stars Jim Caviezel and it's got a pretty good cast. I seem to remember. Anyway, everyone wakes up in this abandoned warehouse and they've all got amnesia, but it's clear that you know, some kind of deal has gone south and they don't know whose side they're on or why this has happened or who is the bad guy. An unknown ultimately isn't as consistent as Free Fire, but it's a more interesting idea. Um, I thought that Free Fire was so entertaining and so well executed in what it did. <coughs> I mean, I, I know that you, you. I know that you really liked um, High Rise last year. I didn't, which I didn't find entirely satisfying. I thought a lot of the things it did with the hallucinatory cross cutting, he had already been done. You know, ben Whitley had already done been done. You know, better, to a better effect, in my opinion, in a field in England. Mm. And yeah, I think I think Free Fall was just the perfect film to end the festival. Oh yeah, yeah, indeed, definitely. I think it's, um, and, and it will be interesting to see where Ben Wheatley goes next because um, yeah, this is exec produced by Martin Scorsese so he's got that you know, stamp of, of approval so you're thinking well presumably you're going to be offered some big thrillers next or something it's, Disney will offer, will offer him something yeah I wouldn't mind seeing a um, a Marvel adaptation I mean you know, Brie Larson is doing Captain Marvel yeah um, 
is was that got a director yet? Could that have like a kill list? <laughs> I probably not. It's kill list feel to it. I mean, yeah, but yeah, like give him something. Like, I don't know. <coughs> give him the Spawn remake. No, don't give him the Spawn remake. <laughs> Spawn is just one of the most rubbish things ever. <laughs> don't give him a comic book. Just give him a good thriller. Give him something like Seven. I mean, it's does, like, does, yeah. does the does the Lion King live action have a, have a director <laughs> attached yet? Then Bim. Then I think that Ben Wheatley is your man. I just want to see the director of Kill List do a family film. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a good one to end the festival on. He's, I think, one of the most interesting British film directors going right now. Um, and yeah, so it was good. Um, so, is there, is there anything else that we want to say about this year's London Film Festival? I don't know. I think we've covered it in some detail. I think it was a pretty good. It was a good festival opener. I thought it was. Um, yeah, I think that yeah, it's a strong. I think we've both got two very good top ten lists there. I mean, obviously, like yeah, Brimstone <laughs> will be one that you will watch again and realise, oh my god, it's, it's you know a masterpiece. Um, <laughs> when hell freezes over, when hell freezes over. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it will be interesting to see what happens at next year's London Film Festival in terms of the Odeon Leicester Square and the queues and the and if there's uh, or even I mean like yeah, to be honest, you know, this time next year. We're all just going to be living in Mad Max Fury Road anyway, because the pound will be worthless, and we'll all be scavenging and sort of like yeah, trading oil for food and stuff like that. And uh, so, yes, that'll be something to look forward to. Yeah, we'll have to learn to drive. <laughs> we will have to learn to drive. Yeah, best get on that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this roundup of the 2016 London Film Festival. Any ideas what what we'll be talking uh, about next? Probably uh, uh, Doctor Strange. Yes, it will be Doctor Strange. Right? That comes out end of this month. Do you know what else is out end of this month? What? Jack Reacher. October 20th and my god it's like because I really liked Jack Reacher the first film and this has just come out with so little fanfare that it's like what? is it even a proper film <laughs> it, it doesn't have Werner in it so it doesn't I have Werner in it and it's not directed by Christopher McQuarrie and it's like mm, we'll see if this is as, is as good as the first one because the first Jack Reacher film was a really nice surprise and Werner made a very good villain but uh, yeah so probably Jack Reacher and Doctor Strange they will be good. Thank you for listening. We'll and see we'll you then. Soon. Yeah. Witness me. Here's to the ones who dream. Foolish as they may seem. Here's to.